that's cultivated motivation. And seeing how entrapped we are by the eight worldly concerns, how our mind is consistently looking for the happiness of just this life. And we'll do almost anything to get it or to prevent having any unhappiness. And seeing that this is this condition is the result of the self-grasping ignorance and the self-centered thought, then let's generate a very strong determination to oppose those two actual enemies, the self-grasping ignorance the self and the self-centered thought, to free ourselves from them once and for all so that not only we can attain a state of lasting satisfaction and fulfillment and bliss, but so that we can be capable of benefiting others and guiding them to that state as well, no matter what hardships we have to go through in order to do that. So generate that motivation to listen to instructions about Vinaya and monastic life. Just a few more things I wanted to mention from, um, that were left over from the last talk. By the way, did people enjoy the day of silence? Nice, huh? Um, so when I was talking about um, upholding the scriptural and realized dharma, yeah, remember the scriptural dharma, the words of the Buddha, and the realized dharma, having those realizations within one's own uh, mental continuum. Yeah, then we all do it in our own ways, according to our own capacities. Okay, for example, in in India, they're um, by having the the very comprehensive study programs in the great monasteries. They're upholding the scriptural dharma and keeping alive very much that transmission of uh, texts and the ways of interpreting the texts. And then other monasteries, other monastics, focus more on living according to the Vinaya, upholding the teachings, you know, uh, on the monastic code and uh, behavior. Other monasteries focus more on meditation and hoping to gain the realized dharma after having studied and within the context of holding the Vinaya. 
other monasteries really emphasize uh, thought training and long rim, you know, incorporating Vinaya and uh, philosophical studies in some retreat. So different people are going to have different ways of balancing all these things and different ways of upholding the teachings. And we need all the different ways of upholding the teachings and preserving them for future generations. Okay, so it's good that there's all these different ways of practice and different ways that uh, different things that people are doing. Okay, um, so that was one point. Uh, then, um, oh, the question had had come up about um, uh, the lineage and uh, needing to ask the permission of the Tibetan teachers to. Uh, you know, to give ordination in the in the Dharmagupta lineage, and I was explaining that in my case, in the case of several of the other uh, Western bhikshunis, our bhikshuni lineage is in the Dharmagupta, and when we have the necessary time, uh, you know, fulfillment and other qualities, then we're qualified to give the ordinations as part of the bhikshuni sangha, and. Uh, was what I find quite interesting, well, quite wonderful actually, is that um, Venerable Buyan, who's the author of Choosing Simplicity, who is one of my Vinaya teachers, um, she is very encouraging of the Western Bhikshunis to uh, give ordination and to, to do that. So from that side, having you know permission from the holders of the Dharmagupta Vinaya to give that lineage. And so it's not necessary to ask the Tibetans to hold a different Vinaya lineage. Is that, that clear now? Okay. Um, then I was um, also, I think in your papers, you got um, another few sheets called Questions to Help Clarify the Mind. And there's lists of questions. And so here's what I've taken from um, preparing for ordination. And uh, the book that, that we put together. And uh, so it's very good, you know, if you're seriously considering monastic life, to uh, write out your answers to those questions. To really think about them and write out your answers in a very, very comprehensive way because there's a lot of different uh, things to look at and be aware of, um, you know, so that you don't kind of rush into something and then afterwards go, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and I say this again because, you know, uh, we don't live in a Buddhist culture and so people are, are often unaware of, you know, the ways that Buddhist monks and nuns live and, and what you know the precepts entail and so on. And so really thinking about this is very helpful. And also, um, depending on who you ordain with, um, you have to also think about where you're going to live and how you're going to support yourself. Because this is one of the difficulties that most Western Sangha face is that there is not a monastery where they can live. And 
they are dharma centers or they, they live on their own. And so those are very different situations than living in a monastery. And so people, you know, if they plan to do that, they really have to think well about it and know exactly what the circumstances are. Yeah. Because the economic part can be quite challenging. And it can also be challenging to keep the perception in that kind of environment. So it's always good to think well in advance. Okay, so that's why the, the questions are there. And, um, and then also to be able to think down the line, because some people have what I call ordination fever. Okay, which is, I've got to get our date ASAP. Um, and they don't want to hear anything. They don't want to think about anything. So I'm not talking here about people who have a really strong interest and, you know, are very sincere. I'm talking about people who have this surge of energy that, that you know, uh, that, that, has, that isn't very stable. So I call it ordination fever. And, um, <laughs> you know... And they, they uh, often aren't aware of the exact situation. Uh, and so some years ago at, at Tushita Meditation Center in um, Dharamsala, they started a program for Western monastics and, you know, who were going to ordain with His Holiness. And they had people coming there who thought there was one man who came who... Um, who didn't understand he was going to have to be celibate after he became a monk, and somebody else who was going to con- uh, continue living in the house with their spouse and their children and raising their children. And it's like people really had no clue, you know, of, of the situation. And so, uh, you know, that's why these questions and thinking about things... It, it's really quite important, quite helpful. Yeah? And as much as people can uh, develop good circumstances, both externally and internally, before ordination, then that fewer, then you, then you have fewer um, things that come up after ordination that, you know, make you go into crisis. So, you know, a little bit of planning can go a long way. Of course, on the other hand, you don't want to plan so much that, that you never get ordained either, you know, because uh, there's never going to be any security about anything in samsara. So if you're waiting to have, you know, everything be totally secure uh, so that nothing's going to fall apart, then you're going to waste a, uh, an opportunity that you have with the precious human life. So it's the thing of finding some kind of balance in here. So, um, last time we talked about um, the ten advantages of establishing the precepts and the, you know, the ten advantages of actually having the precepts and how they help the individual, they help the Sangha community, and then more expansively they, they help society and uh, both people who are Buddhist and people who are not Buddhist. Okay, uh, and so now what I want to do is talk about the six harmonies. Uh, and I can't remember if I put that 
in your outline. Um, let there anything about the six harmonies? Okay, then you might have to write them down. <laughs> okay, so these are um, six ways in which members of the Sangha uh, work at being harmonious, six uh, ways in which we share and try and create equality um, so that we can live together and in a harmonious way. Okay. Uh, so the first one is physical harmony. Okay. So this is living together in a very peaceful way. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, well, that's it, you know. <laughs> Physical harmony, you know. You don't go beating each other up. You don't go, uh, you know, taking each other's things. You don't, you know, kick somebody out of a room that you want to, where you want to stay in. You don't take food that, uh, you know, more than your own share of food. Uh, you know, these kinds of physical things um, that, that where there's some restraint on our part out of consideration for the people that we live with. Okay? So to create a harmonious uh, ambience instead of always thinking, you know, what can I get? What can I get? Okay? And then the second one is harmony in communication. It's often called verbal harmony. The communication isn't just verbal. It can be email. It can be through physical gestures and, and so on. So um, trying to live in an environment where there aren't um, many arguments and disputes and when they do arise, then to remedy them. So this is really very important in any kind of community or, you know, we all know even in intimate relationships or in work relationships and school relationships, you know, as much as possible to avoid verbal disputes and backbiting and things like that and to have a sense of harmony in our communication with others. So this one is actually quite challenging. Yeah, um, We have what I like to call our, weapon, our verbal weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> yeah. In the sense that we know what to say that will hurt somebody. When we know somebody well, we know exactly what to say that will hurt them. And we know how to mask it so we look like, you know, uh, innocence embodied. So this is something that we really have to be very, very careful of. Yeah, is any intention to hurt others in by the way we communicate with them. Now, one thing that we've discovered at the Abbey is very often people do not have the intention to uh, cause somebody else harm with the way they speak or with their communication. But people get harmed anyway. Would you say you've discovered that? That we don't you know, necessarily have the intention to harm, but people do get harmed. Or... Sometimes we may have the intention to harm, but we aren't aware of it at that particular moment. Or we rationalize it. Okay? 
Or, you know, like I said, we're just totally unaware of our, our own motivation. Sometimes our feelings are hurt, and we think that we're just expressing our hurt feelings, but actually we're blaming somebody else for hurting us. Do you ever do that? No? In an attempt to say, you know, my feelings are hurt, we say, you did this and you did that, and you're the problem why my feelings are hurt. And we don't realize that we're blaming and that we're hurting somebody else by our words because at that moment we're much more involved in our own unhappiness and our own hurt feelings than considering about how we're expressing ourselves. We're just more intent on getting it out, you know, and so we don't think of how it's going to affect other people. And along this line, one one thing that I've noticed is that we can't, we're not very good at discriminating between feeling, here feelings meaning emotions, not like in the five skandhas where feeling means happy, the happiness, pain, or neutral. Here I'm talking about feelings meaning emotions. We're not good at discriminating those feelings from thoughts. So we'll say things like, I feel you aren't listening to me. Okay? You ever said that? Yeah? Do you know what it means? I feel you aren't listening to me? We kind of all think we know what it means, right? But is that a feeling? Do you feel like somebody's not listening to you? Do you really, do you feel that? Well, I feel something, and I call it, you're not listening. Yeah, but what you're feeling is not somebody not listening to you. What you're feeling is... Hurt. Hurt. Angry. Confused. Lonely. That's what you're feeling. But we say, I feel like you're not listening to me. Actually, we're thinking somebody's not listening to us. But we're feeling hurt and lonely and angry and disappointed and things like that. Do you see the difference? Yeah. Yeah? When we say, I feel you're not listening to me, how's the other person going to react? I'm listening to you. Yeah, they're going to say, I'm listening to you. Yeah. And they're going to react defensively. Why? Because they feel attacked. They feel, you know, they're thinking that we are blaming them. And we are, actually, aren't we? We're actually, when we say, I feel you aren't listening to me, we're blaming them for how we feel. When people feel blamed, how's the rest of the discussion going to go? Not so well, huh? Okay. Similarly, we might, we might say, I feel 
that you're doing a power trip on me. Okay? We say things like that all the time. I feel you're doing a power trip on me. I feel you don't respect me. Are we feeling that or are we thinking that? We're thinking. Have we checked with the other person if they're doing a power trip? Have we checked with them if they're disrespecting? No. We're coming to a conclusion. We have a thought about what we think they're doing, which may or may not be correct. Okay? May or may not be. Depends. But when we say, I feel you're not respecting me, I feel you're doing a power trip, we're omitting our participation in this. And our participation is that that thought is ours. We're the one who's thinking, you're not respecting me. You're not listening. You're doing a power trip. Okay? We're the one who's interpreting that person's behavior to mean that. So by saying, I feel you're blah, 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 we're not owning the fact that we're interpreting their behavior in that way. You get what I'm saying? Yeah? And like I said, it might be a correct interpretation. It might not be. But whatever it is, we're not owning that we're interpreting. And instead, we're looking at it as if somebody's behavior has inherently existent meaning in it. And again, what we often find out when we actually talk to people and dissect the the situation is that often why we think they said or did something is not (coughs) always the reason they said it and did it. Okay? But again, we believe everything we think. So if I think somebody's not respecting me, I don't doubt that. I think that's an objective reality out there. Okay? So this kind of thing leads to a lot of problems. Have you ever felt that somebody uh, has blamed you for something that they in fact misunderstood? You know, you were saying or doing something and they completely misunderstood it got very upset with you and angry and blamed you. That ever happened to you? I think it's happened to all of us. When you're on the, the, the receiving end of somebody saying, I feel you're doing blah, 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 how do you feel? If, if you haven't, if that wasn't really your motivation then you feel misunderstood and you feel hurt and you feel angry. Okay? And even if somebody did get it right and is revealing our motivation and our behavior, then how do we usually react? We get quite defensive, don't we? And angry. So what I'm getting at 
is whenever we use the structure of I feel your blah 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 you know we're setting it up so there's it's, the communication is going to be difficult okay. do you see I keep flipping around who's on the receiving end and who's on the delivering end I hope you can follow me and the reason I, I flip it around is because I think it's very helpful to see the scene from both sides because if we only see it from the side of I feel you're not respecting me you know then we're, we're, it's so hard for us to see beyond that we're so invested in that view of thinking it's an objective reality but if we can flip it and be the person who somebody says to you're not respecting me and feel how you know and think how do I feel when somebody says that well if I am if I truly am disrespecting them then I feel angry that they notice my bad my bad action and I want to get defensive to protect myself which is of course all garbage but that's the way human beings are and if I did wasn't intending disrespect and somebody said that then I feel you know kind of cut off and lonely and misunderstood and hurt and like that but I don't want to admit I feel hurt and you know so often when we feel hurt we don't we're not in touch with the hurt feeling because as soon as hurt comes pal we get angry because you know when we feel hurt we don't have much of a sense of power you know hurt it's like you know so we, we feel powerless we feel helpless what better way to overcome hurt than to get angry and we have a sense of power especially because the adrenaline is pumping yeah. so sometimes we might get angry at ourselves. sometimes we might get angry at somebody else but anger gives us a false sense of power in either case true? not true? yeah true isn't it? okay so communication is like sometimes I'm so surprised that as human beings we manage to communicate at all <laughs> you know because our minds are so full of thoughts and emotions and we're often so reckless with the words we use because we're so involved in our emotion that we're not thinking how can I express what I'm feeling in a way that the other person can understand it okay. now if somebody says to you I feel hurt how do you usually respond like uh oh somebody's hurt I care about them don't you usually if somebody says to you I feel really hurt do you go oh good I'm so glad <laughs> I mean okay maybe with some people you do let's be honest about it but if it's somebody that you live with that you care about if they come to you and they say my feelings are really hurt do you say oh good I'm glad no you feel a sense of care don't you for that person but if somebody comes to you and says I feel you're disrespecting me do you usually respond with care and concern for them 
No, you feel blamed. Okay, you feel hurt yourself. Yeah. So do you see the difference in, in the words we use? You know, when we say, I feel, and to make sure that we're actually stating a feeling, that we're not stating an interpretation. Because if I say to somebody, I feel hurt, then they're going to say to me, why did you feel hurt? And then I can say, you said, and quote the words they said, and then say, I interpreted that to mean blah, blah, blah. And for that reason, I felt hurt. You see? Now what we're doing? First we're repeating what we heard. Then we're saying how we interpreted it. And then we're saying, and that's why I felt hurt. So that gives the person the chance, you know, because when we quote, you know, you said da-da-da-da-da, it's so interesting. <laughs> Have you ever been in the situation where somebody said, you said da-da-da-da-da, and you think and you say, did I say that? I don't remember saying that. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah? And yet, when we say to somebody else, you said da-da-da-da-da, we're sure that we're quoting them word for word. Okay? So when we're saying what we think we heard somebody say, they may say, did I say that? Really? You know? Or, and they may say, oh, I did say that. Boy, you know, now I understand why you're hurt. Or they might say, you know, that's not exactly what I said. Here's what I said. And then we may see, oh, we misinterpreted what they said. Do you think it's ever possible that we misinterpret people? <laughs> it's definitely possible they misinterpret us. It happens all the time. Do you think it's ever possible that we misinterpret them? Maybe once in a while? Yeah? Hold on. So, the CC, you know, when we state this back to the person, it gives them an opportunity to really say, well, yeah, I did say, say that, and I meant it, and I'm really mad. <laughs> or they may say, I did say that, and I understand that you feel hurt, and I'm sorry I hurt you, but we still have something we need to work out. Or they may say, you know, that's not exactly what I said. Or they may say, those are the words I said, but you misinterpreted it. So there's so many, you know, different things that can come through there. And this process of kind of slowing it down and saying this can actually prevent a whole lot of disputes. Because yeah. usually what happens if somebody says something, somebody feels hurt, they get angry to cover up their hurt, they say something, you know, blaming towards the other person, the other person gets defensive, and they, have, they feel hurt, they get defensive, they get angry, they say something back to us, 
we now feel hurt again and more defensive and more angry and more misunderstood and we say something back and it keeps on going. And everybody's blaming the other person for, you know, you're not listening to me, you don't care about me, you, 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 you. But how do we know what, you know, why are we talking about you when we're not the other person? We need to talk about what we're feeling, what we're thinking, how we're interpreting it. Because we don't really know what's going on inside the other person's mind. Very seldom do we ask people. Yeah? It can often be really useful sometimes to ask people why they said something or what they really meant. Because so often, you know, our conflicts, we're just totally missing each other. Totally missing each other. You have a question? In this kind of situation, would you say that um, intuition is the same as interpretation? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. At least my intuition. Maybe somebody else's intuition is much more refined. But, you know, when I say I have the intuition, it's usually an interpretation. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes, very often, it's not. Okay. Yeah. We say, I have this intuition. What does that mean? Yeah. What, is, what do we really mean when we say, I have an intuition? It means, I have a thought that something's going on. Don't we? It means, I have a thought. It may be an accurate thought. It may not be an accurate thought. But we don't have direct perception, at least us ordinary beings. If you're an Arya, like when we were talking about, you know, the Buddha's three higher knowledges, yeah, and uh, and then other um, supernormal powers. So if you have clairvoyance, then you can say I have an intuition because you have a direct perception of something. But for us ordinary beings, I have an intuition. I don't know. What do you think? Also, you might have sense, and a sense is something that's kind of more feeling. Mm-hmm. Because I know you, you use it in nursing. You know, you can walk into a, a room and you can you intuit that this person is not well. Yeah. And it's nothing that they said. You just feel that. Yeah. You 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 sense it in some way, but. The thought they're not well is your thought. And I took it from my feeling? Yeah. And your clinical background? And your clinical background and all your previous experience. And you look at their eyes, you look at their skin color, you know, you, you look at their physical position. Uh, sometimes there's a certain energy in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, based on all those things, you come to a conclusion. Yeah. What I hear often from you, Venerable, is that we need to be very careful of those intuition or vision or whatever happens. To be careful with them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the phenomena, or and since it's so, the mind is so complex and emotions mixed with that and thoughts and so to be really careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my own personal viewpoint. Yeah, and until we have really some level of of realization where we can rely on on different things, you know. I, I always think we should be careful of intuition, careful of dreams, careful about what we think. I don't think we should believe everything we think. You know, we're deluded, sentient beings, aren't we? Yeah, so shouldn't we question what we even think? Okay, so <laughs> if it's not to disregard everything, mm-hmm. but question right. and, and release. Yeah. Clear about right. Whatever. Right. Okay. Right. Not disregard it, but question it and and really see what it is, you know. Because otherwise, we can get so lost in making all sorts of yeah, you know, stories, and then often, you know, they aren't true, and then we crash. Yeah. Yeah. And if we spread our story to other people, and we can create things that are not good karma. Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's a, um, like, just what you said about you can be aware that there's an energy in the room, that being aware of an energy is one thing, but our interpretation comes right on its soul fast. Mm-hmm. That we have to be very discerning mm-hmm. <laughs> that all I'm experiencing is an energy. Yeah. You can't say for sure that that's anger, but it's very hard to, I find it very hard to separate those mm-hmm. two things. Yeah, yeah, the energy and our interpretation, our label. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, in the Mind Life series of discussions on memory and attention, the uh-huh. scientist was talking about the fact that in a highly charged situation that we see, mm-hmm. where our emotion is just going through the roof, uh, later when we're telling us, what happens is we're convinced that what we saw is really what took place. Mm-hmm. But they're saying that emotion will just simply bump up our confidence. It doesn't make us more astute of the detail. Yeah, it's true. Emotion does bump our, our confidence that what we see is objective reality, but it doesn't make us any more astute at noticing the details. And if anything, it makes us less able to aware to notice details because we are so caught up in our own internal feelings and the story that's going around in our mind about our feelings. Yeah? And we can go like way off. Yeah? And, and you see this sometimes, you know, somebody, uh, my, my classical story I use is, you know, there's a married couple and, and uh, you know, they, they always eat peanut butter in the morning and one morning there's no peanut butter and one of them says to the other, there's no peanut butter this morning. You know I like peanut butter. You know we always eat peanut butter. I put it on the shopping list, and you deliberately didn't get the peanut butter, you know. 
and you're trying to hurt me, you're trying to make me unhappy, you know, you're always doing to this. This is your typical passive-aggressive behavior of saying you're going to get something, you're going to do something, and you don't do it. And this peanut butter is the A number one example of your passive-aggressive behavior. And I've been living with this for years and years and years, and you don't communicate at all, and you're always backstabbing me, and I want a divorce. (laughs) Simply because there was not any peanut butter for breakfast. Okay? Do you see? I mean, this is, this, have you ever been in situations where this kind of thing happens? Yeah. Some small, tiny thing. Then everybody gets so worked up and imputes so much meaning on one small, tiny thing, you know. And then we take out our whole arsenal of all the previous times that they've hurt us and all the previous times when we haven't gotten what we've wanted. And for the same, you know, they've been backstabbing and trying to get us and been passive-aggressive, you know, then too, and we have all this ammunition, all this, you know, evidence And we start our court case to show them, you know, I am charging you with being passive-aggressive and hating me all these years. In fact, you never loved me at all when we got married. You were just using me the whole time. And, you know, and we have all these reasons and we charge, you know, do this whole thing. And the angrier we get, the more, you know, because we take all these petty little slights and we remember them, (laughs) you know. We have a a little file of, you know, things so-and-so did to Harley, things so-and-so, you know. And then when something that's a little bit bigger comes up, then we open that file. And you not only did this today, but last week you did this, and a month ago you did that, and five years ago you did this, and then you did and that, and that, and I have all this evidence, which shows that you really are the devil incarnate. (laughs) Trying to, you know, destroy my happiness. And the other person is sitting there. The peanut butter is under the counter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this is, is one thing, you know, when we're living with other people that we really need to try and take care of. You know? And so that's why sometimes like silent days like we had yesterday are really good because it gives us a chance to see, you know, this urge to speak that we so often have. And like, well, what was it I was about to say? And is it really important? Does this really need to be said? So it, it, it can be quite helpful that way. Yeah. And so naturally when you're living with other people, you know, things happen. Yeah. So it's very important within the Sangha community to sit down and talk about it and, and you know, and people really listen to each other. And Thich Han has something 
Um, he has a, a little book called Living Joyfully Together about Sangha life. I really recommend it. But he has something that if uh, you're upset and angry with somebody, don't hold it. I think it's don't hold it for more than 24 hours, you know. And so if it's been more than 24 hours, then you need to go to the other person and say, you know, you did X, Y, Z, and this is how I interpret it and how I feel, and, you know, can we talk? Yeah. Or if you don't feel ready to talk about it because you're still too angry, just to say, you know, I feel hurt or I feel whatever it is, and can we talk about this at a later time? Is that how it goes? Actually, the first thing yeah. you do is you go to the person and you say, I'm suffering. Ah, okay. And I need help or I'm suffering. Okay, so you go to the person and you start out with, I'm suffering. Yeah, I'm working with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm suffering, I'm working with it, and I want you to know that. And then when you say that, when you start out with, I'm suffering, then other person's going to respond with some heartfelt care. But when we're mad, do we ever think we're suffering? No. No. Are we suffering? Yes. Yeah. We're suffering a lot. It, take, it takes some courage to go to somebody and say, I'm suffering, doesn't it? Yeah? Because in our culture, you're not supposed to suffer. You're supposed to be powerful. You know? It's easier to get over the anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> I had a, when I watched that, and the next time I got angry, and it was lasting, and it was giving you 24 hours, I thought, you know, it'd be a lot easier to get over this anger than the movie. So it's easier to get over your anger than to go to somebody and say, I'm suffering. <laughs> So our pride actually yeah, helps pride us a little bit, doesn't it? That's yeah. not better. No, it's not better, but it helped me. It helped me to see my, what was going on in my mind. Mm. Yeah. I was just so intrigued by um, this false sense of power, you know, that when we head towards the anger, versus the real power of being vulnerable. Because mm-hmm. when you're vulnerable, um, the few times I've ever been able to do it and get over my pride, then it seems like all these really wonderful things often happen. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing goes away and you feel closer to the other person and, and you know, some relief. But it, I, I was sitting here thinking, why would I not do this? I feel really hurt because you said to me that sound. And it was like, but this is the person that hurt me, I'm not going to go tell them I got hurt. And so there's the pride, you know, yeah. and it's just like, oh, goodness, I'd rather hold on to that than go over yeah. like so rather I often wait to see if it'll go away because I don't want to go and be vulnerable. Yeah. Okay, so saying I'm vulnerable or saying I'm hurt or saying I'm suffering is vulnerability. And, like, what happens if I say that and they say something else that hurts me even more? Yeah. You know? So, so there's fear. <laughs> there's fear and there's also pride. I don't want to admit that. I don't want to admit that to them that I, or to myself even, that 
you know, that I have feelings and that other people can hurt me. Yes. Or that I can hurt myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's So you're saying that in a workplace, if you don't know people so well, you know, it's hard to to say that to them. You don't know how it's going to be received. But on the other hand, you know, it's going to stop the show, isn't it? You know, if you go to somebody and say, I'm suffering. Yeah, then it's going to break the whole pattern, the whole cycle. But people we get angry at aren't usually the people we don't know. It's usually the people we live with. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Usually the people we know very well. Yeah. And are with a lot and depend on. Mm-hmm. One of the things that also struck me about that particular video and has always struck me about Thich Nhat Hanh, that it's just a, a thought really, is that he's so um, kind of... Um, Almost, if you say this, totally the wrong word, but he's totally out there with his language about, you know, my darling friend, my my <laughs> dear dear Dharma friend, my brother, my sister. You know, he has that kind of language that mm-hmm. really lays the groundwork that ensures that we know we love each other, or mm-hmm. we wouldn't be having this conversation. Is what it seems to me. Yeah. And so to yeah. kind of, and that's so like not our culture, <laughs> right? <laughs> to somehow have that fostered as the groundwork right. that yeah. this works in is, mm-hmm. it, it seems kind of radical yeah. right? and also it, it's hard when you're mad to think of somebody that you're not related to as my dear Dharma brother or sister yeah. Yeah. you know that they are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say about like, the workplace I think if somebody came to me and said you know, I feel hurt because so I'll be like taken back, like, oh, okay. I'll kind of be happy because it makes you, it bridges a distance that, you know, that you didn't have. Because if, I mean, other than that, they'd be like, you know, just continuing. Yeah. Yeah, it can bring a real sense of closeness, can't it? You know? Oh, there's somebody who's suffering. Because you also want to help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the workplace, what if um, um, like this is really the aim of the person to get the other something? Right. And uh, like in that a well set up. Sorry, I can't think of a well set up. This kind of harassment in place mm-hmm. would this be like giving exactly what the person is looking for? That mm-hmm. that we really need to realize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's hard, you know, in that situation. 
because you really have to be quite strong to go to that person and say I'm suffering um, in really extreme situations like that I mean it's, it's interesting to try and, and think anybody have ideas who are doing it in a really extreme situation of harassment yeah I think usually we really try to harm people because we think they're happy. So if we realize that they actually are suffering mm-hmm. and actually weren't you know, these happy people that deserve to suffer, then maybe we kind of slow down a little bit. I think a lot of like anger placed in those situations is kind of based on the assumption that these people actually have very happy lives and mm-hmm. that they just have all this joy that they don't deserve. And I'm trying to take it from them because they don't deserve it because they're bad people because they did this or that or that. But if I really stopped and thought about the fact that they actually are already suffering, then I think a lot of my anger was subsided very quickly. Mm-hmm. You can see that the person who is who is actually doing a power trip is suffering. Is I'm that saying, what you're saying? I'm saying from my, if, if I was the person who was you know, causing harm to another person. No, but, but, but she's asking if you're the person who's being harmed. Yeah, yeah, I know, and I'm flipping it. If I was the person who was harming somebody, uh-huh. then it would stop me very quickly, even if I was intentionally harming somebody. Ah. It would stop me very quickly because that intention harming is based on the false assumption that this person has some joy and happiness that I don't have, that they don't deserve. And that, you know, there's a lot of conceptualization mm-hmm. built up there that's not appropriate, not correct. And if someone came to me and said, oh, I am suffering, even if I intended to cause them suffering, I don't think my response would be like, oh, good. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I would, like, rejoice or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Even that person you hate the most, if they come to you and say, I'm suffering, you kind of stop and your, your view of that person shifts but that person is she only the only one being harassed or there's more people well this is getting into a whole other topic I want to stay on on the six um, let's come back to this okay our our six harmonies but I think this is a good topic to have a discussion at uh, medicine meal okay so people you know talk with them and you can all kind of talk about this okay so let's come back here okay the next one is mental harmony Uh, so this is appreciating each other and supporting each other so within a sangha community it's very important that people appreciate each other and that they support each other and like I was saying before sometimes when you live with Sangha you're living with people that you wouldn't hang out with in your regular lay life because they have very different personalities you know but to be able to live with those people and really see their goodness really see their kindness um, appreciate their good qualities appreciate how the existence of your Sangha community depends on those people and all that they contribute to it and to give your support to those people whether they're you know both in terms of supporting their Dharma practice and supporting you know any kind of work they're doing 
So this, you know, the mental harmony is really seeing how interdependent we are. And in a Sangha community, in any community, as soon as you see yourself starting to say, you know, but I'm different than they are. They all do, but I am, yeah, you have a good story to tell about that. Um, (laughs) You know, then as soon as we start separating ourselves out, it becomes very difficult to really appreciate others and to support them because we're so invested in our court case of indicting them for excluding us. Uh, do you want to tell your story? Well, it was, I think, the first, um, first Vajrasattva retreat here. I was actually living in the little cabin down below the new cabin. And I had set myself up in my mind, not only just physically apart from the retreatants, but then I just started seeing, because I was sleeping down there and spending part of the day resting and studying, that I started to see myself in this outsider bowl that all the rest of the retreats were making me, even in silence, they were working harmoniously together and smiling at each other, being kind to each other, and I found myself soon after feeling very much that I was on the outside of the retreat and I was looking in the window, it was snowing outside, you know, like little Bob Cratchit, you know, looking in, (laughs) all the little fires of the Dharma and the soft, you know, just this beautiful feeling. And I just started getting jealous about everything. I started getting jealous about the good qualities. I started getting jealous about the practice. And I was so much suffering during the beginning of that retreat, and that was all made up in my mind. And somewhere along that part, Venerable would do these Q&As and check in with us, and somewhere along the line I fessed up to this. And it was so much love and so much understanding from the group, and they were feeling so much compassion for me that I was setting myself out. There was no intention of harm, no intention of isolating me in any way, shape, or form that I had created this whole suffering because this is one of the ways that I, I, I'm not even sure what the motivation was, it's just a pattern, that I had, ever since then, I have not had anything close to that experience. But how I had set myself up that they had done nothing, nothing, and that when I said I'm suffering, and this is what I'm perceiving, and is that true, it was like, oh my goodness, we had no idea. And then, of course, I, I turned the cabin over to uh, Venerable needed a space because she was in the house. I just said, Venerable needs to have some solitude. Let me go into the house, which was this huge trust issue. I came into the house, and everything changed. You know, I physically set myself up, mentally set myself separate, just because that's how, you know, Sempe makes the victim role just manifest and huge, mm-hmm. you know, things. But it was one of the most powerful experiences of really feeling how I created my own suffering. And I had misunderstood everything. I conjured up this whole hell room for myself with a circle of friends who wanted nothing but to take care of me and to be my friend. Yeah. So I think we all do that at some time or another, don't we? You know? It's like, here's this group and I'm not part of it. 
And I don't know about you, but I remember in, in grammar school. Do you remember in grammar school? Everybody's in groups, and what group do I belong to? And I'm not part of that group, and I want to be part of this group. And in high school, you know, then there were the in kids and the out kids and the this kids and the that kids. And where do I fit in? And I don't belong with them, but everybody else is friends with them, but I'm outside. Nobody understands me. And those are the popular kids, and I'm the unpopular kid. And those are the all the ones who are so good looking, and I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember being so surprised when I went away to college and there was one um, woman down the hall from me who was like the epitome of, you know, kind of what I thought the, the popular person was that everybody loved. And I got, and as I got to know her, because she was living down the hall, I realized how unhappy she was and how she felt left out. And it was like so inconceivable. But, but you're the, you know, kind of person who's the, like the end kid in high school and you feel left out. And then I realized, wow, everybody feels left out. You know? And we all have this thing where we just, you know, paint ourselves into a corner. They all belong. They're all friends. They all know each other. They all understand each other. They all get along. I don't fit in, or they're rejecting me, or, you know, they don't appreciate me, or, you know, I'm deficient, or some way we set ourselves apart. I see some nodding heads in the audience. <laughs> yeah? So, in a Sangha community, yeah, the mental harmony is when we are appreciating each other and supporting each other and we can't appreciate and support each other when we extract ourselves and say but I'm different and I don't fit in and they they all do blah blah and me you know and uh, and also when we separate ourselves out like that like she was saying you know here are people who were trying to be kind to her she couldn't even see it yeah. So it's something to be very aware of, you know, that tendency in our own mind to, to extract ourselves from the group on the grounds that, you know, well, we just don't fit in, and whatever it is, or they think blah, blah, or whatever it is. Okay, so that's mental harmony. Then, um, then there's harmony and precepts. So we all have a um, similar lifestyle, and we keep the same precepts. So that's quite important, you know. And like I was saying, that we have our general precepts, and then within each monastery, there's going to be um, different kind of uh, guidelines that that are unique to that monastery. Or each monastery might have a different. Uh, way in which they interpret certain precepts, yeah, considering that, that we can't uh, keep all the precepts, it's very difficult to keep all the precepts really literally, then different monasteries may interpret things differently, how to keep different precepts. And so we have a common view in the precepts, you know, we keep them in a common way, and we have a common lifestyle, okay? So that's harmony in, in precepts. Then there's harmony in views, which... Um, 
means that, you know, we're all taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We're all aiming for enlightenment. We're all trying to understand the teachings. We're all holding a similar view. You know, nobody is, is uh, you know, kind of really trying to hold on to wrong views. We may have all sorts of wrong views, but nobody in the community is going to go around kind of teaching deliberately teaching wrong views and you know if somebody does other people will correct them um, so we try and uh, share common views that doesn't mean we, we all think alike but in terms of our Dharma practice and how we're training the views we're training our minds in then you know we're very similar we're all trying to generate bodhicitta we're all trying to generate uh, renunciation we're all trying to understand what in the world is the prasangika view okay that's harmony in views and then harmony in welfare is uh, that means that we share the um, the offerings in an equal way we share whatever belongings the community has in an equal way okay and so um, I think that that's quite important that um, that, that people are very equal in terms of the offerings. And so, for example, uh, sometimes, you know, offerings are passed out when you're in an assembly, when you're in puja. And if you take, you know, if somebody who's passing them out makes a mistake and gives you two portions, you don't keep it. You know, you give the second portion back because you want to receive exactly what everybody else has, has received when offerings are distributed to the community. You know, and so in that way too, you know, really being sensitive, you know, when when there's lunch line and leaving, make sure that we leave enough food for other people and so on and so forth, and that whatever offerings are given, they're distributed at the meeting, at the meals, or you know, in in an assembly where everybody's there. Of course, if somebody chooses not to eat in a meal or they choose not to go to that particular assembly, then you know, they don't have that claim on the offering. But, you know, who's ever there, when things are given out, it should be equal. Yeah. And that, that makes a very nice thing. And this is, is some, something that can be very problematic in Dharma communities, uh, especially in communities where they expect people to support themselves. Because... There, then you have rich monastics and poor monastics and the rich monastics who can go here and there and take teachings and do this and that and, they, and some you know, monasteries or dharma centers even excuse them from having to do certain work if they give a little bit more so you get that kind of you know, it's like a class difference within a monastery and I don't think that's very good it, it can really breed a lot of resentment and it's, it's just, um, it's not fair in terms of people having equal access to the Dharma and opportunities to, you know, like travel to listen to teachings and things like that. Yeah. So we, we try and share in, in that regard and so that we don't have a class system. A few minutes left for questions. I was just thinking, except for the one for the precepts, mm-hmm. this would also work for a family. Mm. You would replace the precepts and with values. Yeah. And all those would also make for a harmonious family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, as a <coughs> as a Sangha community, you are like a big family. Yeah. Except it's a family that you've chosen. Yeah. And and you. Uh, well, yeah. 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 How would you handle it in a situation where there might be um, a dispute amongst um, Sangha members that could escalate to the point of physical violence and threats without a resolution? Well, then I would say that's a pretty... If there's a dispute that could escalate to physical violence and threat, then it's pretty serious, and you need to get the entire community together and sit and talk about it and see what somebody is so upset about. If somebody has, you know, uh, if they have mental problems and that's why they're you know, going to revert to violence, then you have to take care of them. Okay, but you definitely are proactive about it. Seems like you're thinking of a specific situation, and, and I'm giving a general answer. So <clears throat> it's very difficult. I should let people know if you ask, if you're thinking of a specific question, yet uh, you're asking me just giving the generalities, I give a general answer which may or may not apply to your specific question. So there's some, you know. Don't take my answer as what you should do because I'm applying generally when you're thinking specifically. Anything else? Yeah. I had a question actually from Professor May about um, the ordination precepts and differences based on gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there differences? Okay, so are there differences uh, in the precepts that the monks and nuns take? Take, yeah. So um, in the ten precepts that form the novice ordination, no, they're they're the same. Uh, In the full fully ordained precepts, yes, there are differences. as I was saying, that the, the monks community, it formed earlier, it started earlier. They got precepts from naughty things the monks did. The nuns community started later. I think it was maybe at least six years later, perhaps longer. Um, so many of the precepts that were established for the monks community, the nuns also have to keep plus ones that the naughty nuns did. But the things that the naughty nuns did, the monks don't have to keep. And there are some precepts that are only for monks and that aren't for nuns, you know? And so some of these have to do with, um, you know, with having different bodies. Some of these have to do with um, stereotypes of the genders. And, um, yeah. Okay, so some a transgendered person, how do they deal with ordination? Um, that's something that I, you know you really need to have a sangha community discuss because there's um, you have to have the sexual organs of one sex or the other to ordain because you have to know whether you're 
joining the bhikshu sangha or the bhikshuni sangha. You know, so indefinite sexual organs or or um, or defective organs in some way, then that person isn't allowed to ordain in that particular lifetime. So there's the, the term of intersex, where someone is born with um, two... Right, right, right. Because do you put them with the men or do you put them with the women? You see, somebody who has both organs, who, where do you put them? Okay. But what's very, they have a thing. Well, that's useless to say. <laughs> precepts you should try and keep strictly and which precepts that you try that you can try and reinterpret things about um, well I think that's one reason why it's good to do this you know in terms of a community because it's very easy for us to say that precepts really hard for me to keep therefore uh, it's one of those ones that we should reinterpret okay <laughs> so we need to be very careful of that and we need to, to look at the circumstances. So the one you gave about the vehicles, okay. So in the past, we didn't use, the Sangha didn't use vehicles because it represented, it could represent arrogance and it could be very physically harmful for the, the people or, or animals hauling the vehicles. But now vehicles, you know, pollute the world. So shouldn't we not use vehicles now? Um, you know, it's it's like there's there's the same issue of vehicles, but the but the whole reason is totally different. So I would say the way I would look at it personally is the reason of you know not polluting the world, not wasting resources. I would see that as a value that we hold on, hold as a sangha community, and one way it manifests is by only driving when we need to. You know, um, I would say that saying you're not going to use a vehicle at all would be very extreme in our society because you couldn't go anywhere to teach or to listen to teachings. Okay, so I think that that would be a little bit extreme. But having the value of uh, simplicity and not wasting things. Okay, and so to me that gets into a whole other set of uh, of things where I think the Buddha would actually make precepts if he were alive today. And so I think we would have precepts that we have to recycle things, 
we have to reuse things, you know, we can't just get in the car and drive somewhere, you know, especially as a community. We, you know, we have to think ahead for what we need and plan ahead and do, you know, mul- buy multiple things at one time so we aren't all coming and going. Um, you know, kind of use the back side of the piece of paper. Uh, you know, all these things that have to do with um, appreciating the things that we have instead of just throwing them out. So when you said that, even though, like, um, before Buddha died, he said that it, even though you could um, change the Vinaya, but no one did, in yeah. a sense, isn't that kind of what happened? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, so, so even though nobody changed the Vinaya, isn't it in a sense what's happening? So there's different views on this. Some people say, if you change the actual words of the Vinaya, then as soon as you change one thing, you're going to change the next, you're going to change the next, you're going to change the next. Then another person, another side says, if you don't establish policies about what these um, precepts mean in modern age, then everybody is going to make an exception to this one, and then they're going to accept, make an exception to that one and make an exception. And so you're going to get the same thing. Okay. So both sides have their reasons. Nobody, in fact, wants to change it because you have to get the whole Sangha together and get them to agree and forget it. Um, what Thich Nhat Hanh did is he rewrote the, the monks Vinaya and uh, put in all sorts of things that have to do with riding in a car and using telephone and internet and things like that. What the Buddha did say in the Vinaya, though, is that if there are things that are similar to what I said not to do, then also avoid those things. And if there are things that I said that are similar to what I said you should do, then you should do those things. So I think, you know, in terms of the Sangha, a well-thought-out Sangha community actually doing that, they're adhering to that last statement, you know, that that the Buddha said. And, you know, they are, in fact, changing things without changing them. But the idea is to to make it livable in the modern age, you know. Because you have, it's, it, there's this the whole debate. You have people who say, and there, there are certain groups. I have some friends. They, they ride in vehicles. But, you know, many of the other things, extremely strictly, okay, you know, it's like you have to finish eating before, before, you, before noon, you know, and... You know, many things extremely strictly. But since the Buddha didn't set up any rules about having iPods, they have iPods. You know? <laughs> Their own personal iPod. So, you know, okay, that makes sense to them. They want to really live as the Buddha lived, and that's what they do, and that makes sense for them. You know, I try and, you know, for me, I want to do it differently. And here, nobody's allowed to have their own personal iPod. Everything belongs to the community. You borrow it. You return it. I don't think we even have a community iPod. Do we? We have MP3 players, but I don't think we have an iPod. We do? Well, it's just another kind of MP3 player. And we've got at least two that have been done in I never knew about this. 
So in any case, you know, they, they belong to the community. So different communities are going to think differently about different things.